For many travelers, how you get there is as important as where you're going. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we're considering two very different types of travel. First, recreational vehicles, or RVs. They've become so popular that they've developed their own unique subculture. Even with gas prices soaring, the low cost of sleeping and cooking at campgrounds can make RV travel a great and economic way to go. This hour, we'll learn about RVs and the people who call them home from Chuck Woodbury. Chuck runs an RV website and has plenty of practical advice for your next vacation. Then, for something more physical and more fuel efficient, we'll go biking. Touring a foreign country by bike is guaranteed to get you up close and personal with the local culture. Willie Weir joins us later in the hour with tales from his latest adventure, biking and camping in Southeast Asia from Bangkok to Laos. Whether you prefer two wheels or more, join us as we explore exciting new destinations by bike and by RV on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Sometimes how you get there is just as important as where you're going. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring both ends of the do-it-yourself spectrum in vacation travel, in ease and comfort with an RV or with the freedom and adventure of a bicycle. You can join in at 877-333-RICK or post your comments on our website at ricksteves.com. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. We're exploring different ways to enjoy our planet, and you know there's a popular subculture of RV travelers that is just growing and growing all the time. My uncle spent most of his life boating, and just last year he sold his boat, and now he's joined this gang, and he's a vagabond RV fanatic. I want to learn more about this subculture of travelers in our country, and I've invited Chuck Woodbury, who's the editor of RVTravel.com, to join us and uh, teach us a little bit about RVing. Chuck, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is that a verb, RVing? Yes. Can mm-hmm. you do that? To RV. To RV. So you are an RVer. RVers, yes. Do you have friends who also RV? There's a lot of a lot of people RVing. Yes. What, what is an RV? Is that a? Tell me. How do you define that? Yeah, by some measures, it also includes snowmobiles and. Uh, but but most people think of it in terms of a motorhome or a travel trailer, pop up trailer, anything that people would pull or drive to that would have a little kitchen and. Uh, sleeping quarters. So um, a, a trailer that you would trail or one of these bigger, what I think of an RV, I think of like a Winnebago where you actually have the driver's cab as part of the trailer, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's what most people would think of. I mean, the, yeah. the bigger, higher-end uh, RVs are so, Winnebagos and, and, and even bigger than those. So you're driving along the road 60 miles an hour and you can just holler back to your first mate, hey, I'd like another cup of coffee and uh, he or she can actually walk around while you're driving. And is that... All right. Yeah, I mean, you can go back and, uh, I mean, people use the restroom if they don't want to go to a rest stop and they can make a sandwich. I mean, I wouldn't use any knives and uh, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't brew the coffee. But, uh, yeah, you have full access. It's great for kids. You know, they can sit in the back and play cards at the table. And, um, you know, it's it's like a little cabin that, that what are, rolls. What are the trends in RVing? I mean, if I haven't RVed for a decade and now all of a sudden I go to an RV uh, show and I look at the new RVs, what am I going to be impressed by? Well... They they become more sophisticated. There's uh, you know there's really two types. There's the people that just go camping in the national forests, in which case you're you're not going to see a whole lot of difference. Um, but you know microwaves, satellite dishes on the top of them for people that want to stay in touch, better quality, larger ones for sure, uh, higher price tags on the top end ones. But there's two different kinds of people, and uh, uh, there's much more of the higher end. Uh, RVs, which are people that are actually living in them, who have sold their houses, and this is their uh, this okay. is where they live. So this is called going full time, is that right? That would be the full timers, yeah. So tell mm. me about this going full time. What, what's the lifestyle like? Oh, it's very, very much a lifestyle. Uh, these are people that probably twenty years ago would have bought a, a condo at the beach or a, a mountain cabin in their retirement, and now they buy these very comfortable RVs and they go south for the the winter and they may stay for three months. Um, then they'll go north. Some of them will travel more than others, but it's their house. They pare down their, their belongings, put them in storage sometimes. We've got Jolene on the line in Bothell, Washington, and, and uh, I think she's got a related question. Jolene? How are you, Rick? Good. Are you thinking of going full-time? Well, I want to, and I, but I don't want to have to get these things that seem bigger than the Greyhound buses. What 
is the smallest that you think that you that you can use if you go, or certainly at least you know three months at a time. So essentially, you want to live on the thing, but you don't want to be driving around uh, uh, something like yeah. too big. Yeah. Yeah. There are people that live in twenty-two footers. I mean, really, uh, my daughter, my wife, daughter, and I went out for four and a half months in a twenty-four footer and had a great time. Mm-hmm. Be- if the season's good, you're outside a lot. Right. Um, you don't need a big, big RV. To, uh, matter of fact, there's disadvantages of the big ones because you can't go into the Forest Service campgrounds and the national parks. Exactly, and, uh, and which some is of, what I want to do, see more of the yeah. national parks. Now, I would think yeah. that would be a very interesting I- irony. I mean, somebody's like got lots of money. They're very enthusiastic. They want to do it right, and they buy the biggest. They're suckered into the biggest one, and then they can't get to where they want to go. Uh, hopefully, up front, they'll know that. Um, and most of them, by the time they get to a, a larger RV, they know that. And they so just, what, is, what is the ideal size if you're really into nature? If you're going to go into the national parks and the, and the national forests, you really are pushing it at 30 feet. You're going to be limited in some of the campgrounds, so you should stay under under 30 feet. Um, okay. But, you know, people live in – there's couples out there full-timing in, in, in camper vans that are just converted vans. It, it uh-huh. really depends on who you are. And Are you going to go by yourself? Um, no, with, with just one other person, one other yeah. adult. Yeah, well, you, you know, it's really how well you get along with that person, and you've got to right. make sure you know that person pretty darn well because it's, it's a tight space, and there are times you need to, you know, do go you take th- a walk. Do you think it's better to get the one that's, you know, the all-in-one motorhome and they're pulling the car or to, have the, uh, or to just have a vehicle that pulls a trailer? If you already have a vehicle, the trailer makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. less expensive, no engine to maintain. Uh, the motorhome, you can... You never have to get out of it if some trouble comes along, which isn't very frequent. But if it would, I don't know if you're going with another woman, but sometimes women don't like the fact that if they're somewhere and there is some trouble, they have to get out of the trailer and go to a car. Where the motorhome, you can just get up and and drive off. And this is very infrequent, but to some people, this is an issue. Oh, yeah, that doesn't bother me. I mean, anything's going to be better than the pop-up camper that I had. You know, I know I can't go full time in my tent trailer. So, from a, a just efficiency and a comfort from camping point of view, what's the downside of having a vehicle you can un- unhitch from your trailer and drive away? Because that sounds like it have some real advantages. You I think it's to... got great advantages. That well, does. You leave the trailer there, and then you're not stuck in great, yeah. something great road. Well, you know, the trailer fifth wheel, which is a variation of a trailer, that's great because you do have the vehicle you can park and you can go and and. Um, for people that are going to go to a destination and stay a long time, um, that's a real good advantage because they just take the trailer there, it becomes their home, and then they've got the car to, or truck, whatever, to go travel around. Um, for people that like to travel more, the motorhome can be an advantage because they're just one vehicle there. They don't have to set up the trailer every time. They just basically go into a place, level it up, uh, live there for a while, and then go on. Um, I prefer motorhomes because I like to have just that one a piece of equipment. Uh, some people pull a little car. You can put. A, I, I carry a mountain bike with me these days, and that that gives me five miles in any direction. Um, and if you stay in a forest service campground or whatever, there's you know lots of hiking and lots of things to do. So get on the internet and research some of the news groups because you'll find that discussion uh, okay. quite often. Julian, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. You bet. I'm talking with Chuck Woodbury, who is the editor of RVTravel.com. Chuck, what is the biggest Winnebago type RV that they make? Oh, I think now they're f- 45 feet. What do you think when you see one of them driving down the freeway? Well, personally, I would never get in one of those because I'd kill myself, but people do drive them. And when you see them going down the road, those people are usually going from one place to another where they're going to stay. They're not out there every day. They're infrequently just driving around in those things. But what I think is that these are probably people who live in it. They drive over to the coast and park it for three weeks, and that's their home, their cabin. And they're very comfortable. These have little slide-outs, um, which means the rooms expand. They are very much like a very small condominium, and these people live in them. And I think sometimes when you get these people into a campground with the tent traders and whatnot, people look at them and say, oh, look at this excess. Mm-hmm. And, but they, what they don't understand, and they see these people that maybe you're in watching television or don't come out, and they say, um, I mean, that's ridiculous. This isn't camping. Well, it's not camping. That's just living. That's just a portable house is what that's it that's is. That's their cabin it's on wheels. It's a whole different thing. Yes, it's a, it's a condo on wheels. Is there a negative connotation to RV? Oh, yeah. I, I th- not, no, not nearly as much anymore. But uh, I always say, you know, 20 years ago, every RV had, uh, we're spending our children's inheritance on the back bumper or grandma and grandpa's playhouse. And the RVers had a little poodle. And to that age group, it was not um, 
negative. But to the younger age group, this was just grandma and grandpa's. Okay, because uh, I have an image of a snowbird RV kind of thing. My image of RVers would be people who are retired. Most people don't understand that the uh, average age of an RVer today is 49 years old, and the largest growing group is the 35 to 54-year-old group. So it just kind of depends. You know, the younger crowd's got the pop-up trailer, and, and uh, the retired crowd's got a, a different one if they're living in it. Okay. Some are just camping and some are living. That's true. So you got to do, I mean, if you look at a huge RV and you just say that's disgusting camping, well, maybe they're not camping. They're probably not camping. All right. Now, if you're buying one, I would think that, uh, well, first of all, what is that 30-footer that we're talking about? Uh, what would that run you? you know? A Class A motorhome, which is the type that you're thinking right. of, um, they'll run you 60000 to 150000 Okay. So it's, you can call it a cabin for people who can't afford a cabin. Yes. Um, you know, the loans are affordable. Um, there's some things you have to be careful in when you buy an RV. Um, the Better Business Bureau has a new RV, uh, a DVD out that explains all of that. Don't you get a huge depreciation hit if you buy a new one? If you're watching your pennies, wouldn't it make sense to buy a used one? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to buy a used one. People have to be very careful when they buy a new one. And uh, unfortunately, they're being sold right now with uh, no money down and 20-year terms. And people get upside down and, and in two years if they want to sell it. They're $10,000 or more in the hole. So you're 20, you lose 20% as soon as you drive it off the That's lot. right. And if they don't put anything down and then they pay, they're basically yeah. paying interest, this is a real problem. And well, um, What are the pitfalls of, uh, of a buying a used one? I would think a lot of people, it turns over pretty quickly. People older, people going through different stages of life, they've got a perfectly good RV and it's on the, uh, for sale. It's a great way to go. However, it's highly recommended that someone... Make sure they have a mechanic go through it. And if you do that, have an RV tech look at the uh, the shell of the thing and the structure, mm -hmm. you can get some great deals on used RVs, and that's a great way to go. So you put money down on, on condition, you get a technician to drive it and check it out. Absolutely. Uh, an RV dealer might be a better choice than there be some kind of a, a warranty. Uh, private party, you got to be a little bit more careful. Tell me all the things you can strap to it or tow behind it. Oh, my goodness. Kayaks. Kayaks, Cars. boats, motorcycles. I mean, the, these big ones, you, they have a garage. You drive a little little Honda into the back of them. To a garage. So you're, they have a garage. Oh, my goodness. And then there's this new, this new hybrid type of RV called toy haulers. And the, the back opens up and people put their little uh, uh, ATVs and motorcycles and things in there. What about this? You know, cost of gas is going up. I'm sure these things are like classic gas guzzlers. Uh, what's that doing to the RV industry? It's it's caused people to slow down. We did a survey recently of about three thousand RVers, and only five percent of them were giving up. But you got if you slow down. Of, what do you mean slow down? The business is just taking a, a little dip. Well, the business has taken a dip. The sales have taken a dip, but the people are still going. They're just if you think about it, most RVs are used for trips that are very short. They go out to the fifty miles to their local lake or whatever, and they right. stay there a week. I think the long trips from the Canadians coming down to the Southwest and. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that kind of stuff's going to suffer. What's the average mileage for a typical RV? No, oh, eight to nine miles a gallon. Right. Some get less, some get a little more, but that's about it. Now, if you're driving, let's say I'm going to drive on, on the freeway for three or four hours. What's that like? Like driving a car. Really? It's no different. No. High ride, beautiful view. Got the coffee on. Got the coffee on, nice view, good music. Got your, uh, Got all your stuff. Is it tough to learn? Is there any safety issues? I think for some people on the really big ones, they should take a class, but for most of the smaller ones... 28 feet and less, um, no. I could just get in and drive it tomorrow, huh? You, would, you wouldn't have a problem. Wow. Later this hour, Willie Weir has stories from his latest bike adventure in Southeast Asia. But for now, we continue exploring RV travel at home and even in Europe. Just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Is taking a road trip with your vacation cabin in tow an extravagance or a great way to take charge of your vacation? We're investigating travel by recreational vehicle. Chuck Woodbury of RVTravel.com is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or you can reach us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Tell me about the social scene. I mean, I've, I, I know from my own family's experience, you know, up on the top of the boat, the, up on the bridge as the sun goes down, happy hour. Is there an equivalent? Uh, what, what's, how do people connect? Because it is quite a thriving subculture, it seems like. Yes, it is. Um, you can be a loner or you can be highly social. There's clubs. People meet all the time. There's some people that, that say they have more friends once they uh, go RVing. These are the people that do it a lot. Um, some people... Um, wonder when they sell their house or whatever. These are, the, again, the really serious ones if they're going to be lonely, and that's just not true. There's socializing the campgrounds, groups, rallies, you name it, and yet people can go out and be there by themselves if that's what they choose, and many do. What do you like best about the social scene? Um, I pretty much stay to myself. I'll meet, I'll meet people in the campgrounds if I want to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm usually out. Uh, for me, it's part work. I'm a writer, so I do a lot of writing out there, and I find it very nice to be by myself and have time to write away from all the interruptions. Okay, so the loner, the poet, the uh, the hiker can use that as a base thing. You know, Charles Lindbergh, when he wrote, uh, Henry Ford gave him a trailer, and he did a lot of his writing from a trailer. Mm-hmm. It was a way he could get away from publicity. And there are people that go out to just get away from the world. Do RV uh, travelers, do they share campgrounds with the tenters, or is there is it a parallel universe? In the public campgrounds, yes. It's everybody. It can be anybody. Um, there are RV parks. What does an RV park cost per night? Twenty twenty-five low end. So you'll pay thirty 40 or forty dollars a night to park your RV in a in an RV park. Yes. And in a campground, what would you pay? Um, anywhere from free to um, fifteen dollars a night, twenty dollars a night in a state park where you hook up to utilities. So what do you get for the forty bucks uh, in a park? An um, RV park? swimming pool, sauna. Um, okay, so it's like it's like you got a hotel room, but you brought your own room. But if they bring their rooms and they got all the hookups, they got a hotel room. Hey, we've got Adele on the line in England. And Adele uh, has written a book called Take Your RV to Europe. And Adele and her husband, Ron, are vacationing right now in England, I understand. Adele, thanks for joining us. Were you listening to Chuck talking about RVs there? I certainly was. Any comments on, his, uh, on what he was saying? Well, you know, <clears throat> there's one more category that he doesn't, hasn't taken into account. And that's people like Ron and I. We use the RV to travel. We camp, but we don't stay in the camp most of the time. We are going from city to city to see whatever there is to see. That's why we're in Europe. It's wonderful here because cities are very close to one another, and there's very little driving time, and things are different in every place. So how does the economics of that work? Adele, you shipped it over. You are spending a little money for camping. Uh, but what about, how does, it all, how does the dust settle from a budget point the of view? Bu- is the cheapest thing, is the least expensive way to go. There is no question about it. It does cost money to ship it, but uh, we shipped it a long time ago. We spend the same $15 or $20 a night that uh, the gentleman was talking about, only we spend it in Gloucester or London hmm. or uh, Paris, right. <laughs> Amsterdam. And the gas is more expensive, but, of course, this is your house, your rental car. It doesn't come close to costing what it would cost to just get into a hotel, never mind the food. Okay, let me ask you a few quick, um, like, nitty-gritty practicalities. Ballpark, what does it cost to ship a moderate-sized RV from the United States over to Europe? Well, ours is only 21 feet. It cost us $2,000 in 2001. There's now a bunker surcharge for fuel, so it probably would cost $2,400. one way. One way. But nobody would do this except unless they were going to stay for three months. Now, Adele, you leave it over there and you fly over for vacations through the years? Well, we spent, we spent three months a year here. So you leave it in England? We leave it, no, actually we leave it in Amsterdam. And how do you, how do you arrange that and what does that cost? Oh, that costs, uh, I think it ends up being about $700 a year. And uh, we found it because we met another man who was also doing the same thing, and he told us about a place in Amsterdam that was very good for storage. It's stored in a greenhouse. It's dry. It's clean. The people start it for, they, you know, disconnect the battery. 
after we leave, and they connect it before we come. Now, when you are visiting Paris or London or Amsterdam, I would imagine you're parking outside of town. and No. You park right in town? In Paris, you're on the Bois de Boulogne. In London, you're in the Crystal Palace. Um, in Amsterdam, there are two different ones right in the city that I know of, and I know there are more, just, just that we only use two. <laughs> and, and then you take advantage of public transit to get around? Absolutely. How much do you use your own kitchen instead of restaurants? Oh, we, we almost always use our own kitchen. Look, we are not so young anymore. We leave our RV in the morning at 9, 9.30. By 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock when we come home, we are tired. Yeah. So we just don't want to go out again. Now, you're in the land of the smart car. What do those Europeans say when they look at you with your big vehicle? Well, it isn't, we're not that much bigger than many of the ones that are here. And I have to tell you that the Europeans come over to us and say, this is wonderful. You've come all the way from America. And they, they love it. Sounds great. We've had an absolutely terrific time. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to read our letters in our blog, but we've been all over. We've been in Normandy. We've been all over England. Your, uh, your book is Take Your RV to Europe. Right. And what's your website? Our website is also Take Your RV to Europe, and the blog is rvtoeurope.blogspot.com. And our letters are in there. We write letters on a regular basis like a journal because people like to travel along with us. Good. Well, we'll, we'll put that website on our website so our listeners can tune in and find out the specifics. By the way, we're talking with Adele Milovsky, who writes Take Your RV to Europe, and we're talking with Chuck Woodbury, who's the editor of RVTravel.com. Chuck, have you traveled outside of the United States in an RV before? Um, I've traveled in New Zealand in an RV, and uh, I've been to Europe many times, and I haven't traveled there, but I've observed it. Right. And it's big there as well. Uh, oh, it's I think it's bigger here. I really do. We never are on a road that there isn't another RV on. I think England is quite into that, yeah. Well, let's talk to it. we got Jeff on the line in Fox Island, Washington, uh, and he's got some ideas about RVing overseas, I think. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Rick. What's your thoughts? Well, our, our plan was this is my my brother and my son's big, long road trip from Frankfurt all around Germany, hopefully Czech Republic, um, maybe as far as Montreux for the Jazz Festival, about 24, 25 days. And we were going to try it in a tent. <laughs> but I'm starting to wonder if maybe a real small camper van might be what we want to look at. And I'm wondering about leasing, rental, um, what's out there. Uh, Adele, do you have any ideas on leasing oh, yeah. uh, equipped there, vans? You can, in re- you can lease, you can rent. It is very expensive. If he's willing to go for a van, it's considerably less money. If you wanted to get something like our 21-footer, that's already getting to be quite expensive. Well, that's kind of what we were thinking. Plus, I'm really a low-impact kind of backpacker camper, and I really wouldn't want to be too big anyway. And a backpack and a sleeping bag are just fine by me. I think the convenience of having the refrigeration, a stove would be good. Um, Well, you know, the... um, a lot of these companies that sell the the commercial guys uh-huh. will also buy it back for a certain amount of money. You still, I mean, you're still paying. Sure. But there are deals that you can make. For years, that's been a good deal where you buy it and they agree to to buy it back at a certain percent. Yeah, something like that. I think if somebody's going for a, a few weeks renting an RV, maybe you know the small ones are very comfortable and great for a family and. And they're not that expensive when you compare it to uh, other ways of traveling if that's the way you really want to travel. What's, what's the problem with going into the Czech Republic with a rental or a lease? I've been reading that some companies won't let you go in. Well, I did, I, that I don't know. To tell you the truth, last year we did go to the Czech Republic, but I was too chicken to go to have to read the signs in Czech. So we went by train from Dresden, which was very convenient. Well, the, the story on that is, Jeff, some countries have a greater risk for theft, as far as I understand, and some car rental companies, and I suppose, uh, logically, van rental companies and RV rental companies, don't want their vehicles going into what was the former you know, Warsaw Pact countries. So higher risk. Uh, it's just higher risk for theft. Some of them will require you get theft insurance. Other companies won't be so, they'll be more loose about that. I, I believe DER, for instance, when it comes to car rentals, is more flexible when it comes to driving into the east, whereas other car rental companies say no way. There's just a lot of their rental cars that end up for sale in Serbia, and, and uh, uh-huh. it's just a headache for them, so they try to discourage that. Sure. Hey, Adele, when you're in your um, parking lot there with all these other RVers, who are you meeting? What kind of friends are you making? 
have a we have a, an invitation to go to uh, Wales. We have an invitation to please join someone in Ireland. I guess the first trip we were here in Amsterdam, we met a gentleman from Aberdeen. We've been there. <laughs> Aberdeen in Scotland. In Scotland. So you you really find a lot of other Europeans enjoying oh, this sort of. Oh, we find a lot of people. There is. I admit that when you're in a place where everybody speaks a different language, you don't meet that many people. But we've met lots of people. Our French is minimal. I mean, I can't talk as well as a two-year-old. And we've met Frenchmen in Italy and talked to them. And one man uh, wanted to read our book, and we gave him a book, and he wouldn't let take it for no money, so he gave us a bottle of champagne. <laughs> hey, Adele, it sounds like you enjoy writing your book. What's the most fun thing about your work? Well, I enjoyed writing the book, but the most fun thing about the whole thing is being here. <laughs> you get a good excuse to travel and, and use your book. Oh, it's, it's a wonderful way to travel. It right. really is. Hey, Chuck, we've been talking with Chuck Woodbury, from, who's the editor of RVTravel.com. You seem to enjoy your uh, work, too. If you were going to write a book about RVing, what photograph would be on the cover? A big, long, straight road where out in the, maybe out in Nevada where you've got the, the mountains with a little snow and the road that seems to go on forever, and it comes to a pinpoint at the end, and you, when you get to that view, you try to guess how many miles it is just to play the game and pass the time, and uh, maybe in the winter when it's a little cool and there's a little frost on the sagebrush. Sounds good. I'm not part of the industry. Right. I'm, I'm sort of do my own thing. I just truly, from the time I was in college, loved the idea of roaming around with my little, all my little stuff with me. So, good. I mean, I fell in love with this lifestyle when I was, and I, and I bought an RV when I was 35 when it was totally not cool. So you're not just seduced by chance to get a cut off of selling a lot of gear to people. We make money on the bookstore, but I'm trying to simplify my business right now. Right. I've run this thing from France. I've run it from Romania. I've run my business from New Zealand. I'm headed to Australia next year. I can. I had a press pass with my buddy for the Tour de France for two, two of the last four years, and so I just traveled around with him and hung out in the press room in the day, and then we, you know, stayed in the little hotels and stuff at night. And it was just a ball. And I, but nobody knew I left home. Right. And I could do my newsletter, which I do every week from anywhere. I mean, what a world! I just like. I just like the idea of bringing my office and my and everything with me. I bring my computer. I bring my. When I started off, I had a manual typewriter and a black and white dark room. You know? Oh, you know, it's like me. I can pack so much into my little little backpack. I'm bringing my whole office in my backpack these well, days. Any, any more? Yeah. Any more? This is the kind of the new road trip. Mm -hmm. The baby boomers who took the car road trips, they now buy these things, and they go out and they do a road trip. But they still go. They still dine out. Dine they out, still yeah. eat at the cafes. They. Um, and then there's the you know the real traditional old timers who mm -hmm. just they, they just want to go out and, and you know sit in their RVs and whatnot. It, it's it can be whatever you want, but when it all boils down to it, an RV you can stay where you want. If there's no and you know what, most people when they stay in motels in this country, they're staying in a comfort inn or something like that. They're not staying in a nice little hotel mm -hmm. like in Europe. So mm -hmm. you know you, there's no experience in staying in a little hotel. No. So the RV makes especially in the American West. I mean. You can go places you couldn't begin to go if you had to stay in motels, and which are now you know hundred bucks a night for a. That's a very good point because I mean, Express. you want to get a hotel magical nature experience. You're going to spend three four hundred dollars a night. That's right. But you got the RV. You can park it right there with the view of the lake. Oh, you should see some of the views I've seen. I mean, you couldn't buy a hotel room with a view like that. What's your favorite? Oh, I mean, the Red Rock Country in Utah is just stunning. I camped on the the edge of Dead Horse State Point which is a state park near Moab, and it was like looking over the Grand Canyon. I was there all by myself. I went down. I mean, there was no other campers. I went down and sat on the edge there at night and watched the moon set over Arch or, uh, Canyon Lands. Yeah. It was total magic. The moon, it was just magic. And I, you know, on the coast, my daughters, we've looked out the front window oh. and seen gray whales. So it's, it's becoming more accepted, this way of traveling. It's just apples and oranges to other ways. Good. I've learned a lot. Hey, uh, Adele in England, mm -hmm. uh, author of Take Your RV to Europe, thanks for joining us. And it Chuck, was a pleasure, Rick. Chuck Woodbury, editor of RVTravel.com. Best wishes with your work. Thank you, Rick. Thank Happy you. travels, everybody. Bye. Those faraway places With strange-sounding names Far away over the sea those faraway places where the strange-sounding names are calling 
calling me. Maybe a camper van or RV isn't quite your style. Adventure bicyclist Willie Weir joins us now to demonstrate how you can minimize your impact on the land while you maximize your experience with the local culture. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and right now we're going to get out our bikes, and we're not going to travel just down the street. We're traveling to Southeast Asia. With me, I have Willie Weir, who is an adventure cyclist, and he's freshly back from an adventure in northern Thailand and Laos. Willie's the author of a book called Spoke Songs, which shares some of the adventures he's had over the years, biking in some exotic destinations. And Willie joins us now so that we can uh, be inspired to get our bikes and go to faraway places. Willie, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Rick. Wow, biking in northern Thailand and Laos. First of all, why would you bike there instead of just going there and taking public transit and seeing more in a given amount of time? Well, it's just always the way I've traveled and by, by bicycle, but it allows me to get off those little tiny nooks and crannies off the beaten paths. And there is not a lot of public transportation in, especially in Laos, but in Thailand as well, other than in the main avenues that you're going to go. So, so you, you got away from the, you got off where there's not a lot of traffic at all. Then. Definitely, definitely. Be- because harder in Thailand than in Laos. Because I've flown over developing countries and I, I've looked down and realized there's not roads down here, but there's a lot of rush hour and it's mm-hmm. just people out walking between towns with stuff on their heads. Okay, again, in the contrast between Laos and Thailand. In Thailand, you will find a LA-worthy traffic jam coming out of Bangkok. When I thought of Southeast Asia, and of course, I'm, I'd never been there before, but in my mind, it was this thought of all these bicyclists heading out. And you had to be in Thailand about 20 years ago for that. My wife and I bicycled out of Bangkok, and we were the only bicycles that I saw that entire day. It is scooters and trucks and whatever. Just so you wrote that crazy. was the worst experience of your trip was trying to bike out of Bangkok? Getting out of Bangkok was, was quite the experience. I, you know, I've done so many just crazy cities before. It's insanity... But it's insanity with kind of a, a Buddhist flair to it. You have to get in with a flow of traffic. But I've never been in a traffic jam anywhere in the world that was as passive as the one in Bangkok. There was no horns honking. And to me, the, the traffic light would change and it would turn red and then everybody would sit there and nobody would go anywhere. And then it would change again and, and everybody would be stuck and everybody was just seemed to be fine with passive. it. Passive. Does yeah, that mean people are just used to wasting time? Well, I think it, partially in, in the culture of, of Thailand to get upset in public, you lose face. And so as a traveler, you want to make sure that it's a great place to count to ten. Wow. Because if you get angry... You honk your horn, you're losing face. You're losing face. And if you get angry with an innkeeper or anybody in public, if you raise your voice, so you'll find, as, as uh, another traveler and actually as a local told me as well, if a Thai is yelling at you, you are in trouble. I mean, that is just... But it never happened. Outwardly, in Thailand, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very peaceful... And that's hard because... In our culture, just heading, you know. Or in Italy, you vent. I mean, you see people arguing and and, and animated, and two minutes later, they're arm in arm, and they're good old buddies again. So you have to take a step back and not. There's more with adventure cyclist Willie Weir coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Ursula Klaus from Vienna, and that was in Viennese German... I travel with Rick Steves. Ich reise mit Rick Steves. Thank you. We're talking with Willie Weir, my favorite adventure cyclist, and Willie's back from Laos and North Thailand. Uh, just before we get into all these cultural experiences and so on, Willie, how long was the trip? How many miles did you drive? What's the big picture? Okay. The trip was about three and a half months, and we ended up going just north of Bangkok, so northern Thailand, no, not to the beaches, to the south of Thailand. And so we spent about seven weeks in Thailand, about five, five and a half weeks in Laos. And then we did another side trip, not on our bicycles, but we took a bus to head down um, to go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. You can't get to that part of the world and not go there. But basically 10 weeks on your bikes, Mm -hmm. you and your wife. Yes. And how many miles do you think you've pedaled? Two to two and a half thousand miles. 2,500 miles. So you're quality miles. So that's what, 30, 30, 40 miles a day, you figure? Yeah. What's interesting, and what I have to tell people if they're going to head over there, in northern Thailand, especially in northern Thailand, you will find some of the steepest roads on the planet. They, they do not believe in switchbacks. And so right. we had one 15-kilometer day in northern Thailand, and that's as many kilometers as I wanted to bicycle. Right. It was, I, I've never seen anything steeper, but it was paved. 
But I realized next time I go to Thailand, I need to work out with weights because I at one point stopped because I couldn't pedal any further, and I realized I didn't have the upper body strength to be able to push my loaded bike up the hill. So, How did your wife do with this? I mean, Kat travels with you on the yes. bike. Is this the most aggressive trip you've taken with her? Well, no. It might have been the first when we were in the Balkans as far as just uh, dangers and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But uh, as far as difficulty cycling, I think what helped... Every travel is a compromise, whether it be in a group or sometimes even uh, alone. But with Kat and I, we get better and better at traveling. And I think the compromise that happened on this journey that was great was that we spent more time than I normally have had in the past in different cities. We spent at least 10 days in Bangkok. We spent 7 to 10 days in Chiang Mai up in the north. We spent 5, 6, 7 nights in Luang Prabang in in Laos and maybe 4 or 5 nights in Vientiane, uh, the capital city of Laos. And that, what it does and what it did for us was be able to break the trip up into these little sections, and mm-hmm. especially when you have very difficult conditions and you might not be staying at an end and you might be camping out and you might find yourself pitching a tent uh, at a police checkpoint in Thailand or finding yourself in, on a flat piece of dirt in a little Hmong village up in the north, that's difficult. And having the opportunity to, to just chill out somewhere was fabulous. And, okay, and so you said that was better. a compromise. In other words, your, your wife, Kat, would rather uh, have a, a little more uh, big city breaks with comfortable hotels and, and for your style, but you've, you've come up with something that works for both of you. What I have to say is more, it's more habit. I have found that the journey that we did was fabulous. And it wasn't that I was, in a sense, moping because we were in these places uh, in in cities too long. It's just that I think that you get used to when you travel alone to a certain pattern. And then you travel with somebody else and you either change your pattern or find that mix. And I think what we've been very good at is being able to find the compromises on both sides. And I think it just makes for much better traveling. Now, you found the contrast between the two cultures Northern Thailand and Laos, quite striking. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, everything from just the people. I mean, 64 million people in Thailand, about 6 million people in Laos, 4% arable land in Laos, 34 or 35% arable land, you know, for agriculture. So very, very different. And even the roads. I mean, I talked about that traffic jam heading out of Bangkok. If you go to Luang Prabang, which is the second largest city in Laos, and you take what I call the I-5, the interstate, heading north, 20 vehicles per hour Bicycle one day, head east on a paved road, main road up in northeastern Laos. You will find 20 vehicles per day, including scooters. So the difference is that... uh, It goes from sparse to almost nothing. Right. When you're in Chiang Mai, and what's happened is that... And that was Laos that you were talking about. That was Laos. So the metabolism of Laos is really sleepy compared to Thailand. You cross the Mekong River and you can just... I love Thailand. I mean, we spent seven weeks there and I loved it. But you cross the river and you headed across the Mekong and you got got in this little town and there were kids all bicycling to school and you didn't hear all the traffic. You realized how chaotic that Thailand was in comparison. So it's, it, it, was, it was a lovely contrast. And, and at the same time, after having traveled five weeks in Laos, there is, if you go from Luang Prabang to Vientiane, and that's, if most people are going to travel in Laos, they're going to go along that main road. And most people who've been to Laos have been that route, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And you can, for instance, I had the best chocolate croissant in my life in Luang Prabang. Actually, the best cup of coffee I've had, well, other than Seattle, uh, in that town. But outside of there, chances of, I mean, finding food, we sometimes had to go to a village, knock on you know somebody's place of, of residence and ask if there were eggs and could somebody please fix us a meal because there were no so you had to rely no. on the hospitality of strangers oh definitely yes now, in in that regard did you ever get yourself in a situation where you had to eat something that was really gross just to be polite <laughs> well we I remember having uh, one particular soup on on uh, just a, a roadside there were a couple of workers that were at you know these restaurants are basically a little shack with uh, somebody cooking in the back and and. I couldn't quite figure out whether the woman had accidentally grabbed the dishwater because that's pretty much what it, and and in a lot of areas, especially and in what Boston, you do, just uh, oh, I ate it. You know, did you really? Was, oh yeah, yeah, I did. Because yeah. when I was in I Thailand, just, we went uh, you know trekking from hill tribe to hill mm-hmm. tribe, and a few times this was all there was, and it right. was just a it was a plastic baggie full of mushed together uh-huh. fruits and maybe a little protein. I don't know what it was, yeah. but. 
You had to eat it. Well, and the contrast, too, as you mentioned, in Chiang Mai, if you go to Chiang Mai, and that is where everybody goes to sign up for these hill tribe treks. And now Chiang Mai has grown so big and and that's become so popular. I found it amazing to head around in Chiang Mai and see all these signs for dozens. It seemed like hundreds of these different groups that were heading on hill tribe treks. And the one sign I love was this. It said... If you see a foreigner on your Hill Tribe Trek, another foreigner will give you 50% of your money back. Because so many people want that, that exclusive experience, but there's so many people out there that you end up seeing, you know, five different groups. So you now can they're still do that? that. You can still actually take a Hill well, Tribe Trek and I, not see another Well, that, that sign at least said they you put could. Their money now, where they're you cross the border in Laos, and you're traveling that little road in the northeast, and you're going amongst Hmong villagers on, on that road. You're not having to sign up for... Right. Tri- you're with the hill tribes and everybody's there. There's Why doesn't everybody just go to Laos if they're looking for the magic of Chiang Mai? <laughs> well, because it's the factor that when you get to the end of your day, it's very difficult to travel in that part of, I mean, there are no, there's no bus systems. You end up with the Songtaos and they go, I mean, to go a distance in Thailand that you would do in five hours would take you three days in northern Laos. And so even on a bus, sometimes we, it seemed like we were going faster than the people who are going on the Songtaos. Uh, and the Songtao is just this truck with, a, with two seats in it uh, in the back. It would normally fit eight people. They fit 45 and sometimes a water buffalo. So paint me a picture, Willie. <laughs> we're, we're, in the, we're in Laos, uh-huh. and you're in the middle of nowhere, and you're on your bike. Is it like, are you on a little dirt road between uh, irrigated rice paddies? Or Northern Laos, uh, imagine, um, we probably climb three to 7,000 feet a day in northern Laos. So never going up to the highs, you're not above tree line, but you're constantly surrounded by tree canopy and heading up into these villages. And you in, every day seem to be starting down near uh, a river and, and then a 15-kilometer climb followed by 11-kilometer downhill, followed by a 17-kilometer climb, followed by an 8-kilometer, you know, up and out. And you'd end up at the same elevation at the end of the day, having done all that climbing in these little villages and tr- dozens of villages each day. But the difference, too, all of that forest is still around. I mean, in Thailand, they have logged almost the entire country. Mm-hmm. And in Laos, I mean, and I tell people, if you are interested in going to Laos, go tomorrow. Laos is changing so fast that if you have a guidebook that was written four months ago, mm-hmm. it's out of date. In fact, if it was written a month ago, we had a guidebook and we're looking at it, the place to stay, there's nowhere to stay, there'd be eight places to mm-hmm. stay. There, uh, there'd be an area that said, don't even travel there it's completely open. I would think you're kind of traveling in Laos. Mm-hmm. So the guidebook's not much helpful. You, you're just going, you, you really yeah, can't. Yeah, it kind of gives gonna, you general So you come into a little village and you know you're going to find some kind of a place to stay. Yeah, you hope so. And then, and then you don't know what's going to happen in Laos. For instance, one particular village, there was no place to stay. Uh, there was a woman at a stall who finally gave us the international symbol for sleeping, you know, her hands up by her face there. We followed her and we ended up you know, staying at these people's home, only at 8.30 at night, here comes the police knocking on the door because somebody had told, you know, the police that we were there and, and we ended up having a little interview and a fine was paid because we were staying in the village uh, without, you know, And she didn't permission. have permission to and, yeah, housing. Exactly. So and, and she little, took that risk and you were going to pay exactly. her cash. Well, and I think actually she was, she took us to somebody else's house. Now, we were in another Hmong villages and Hmong village and we stayed in a tent outside of some people's home and the next morning uh, there was a guy at our, our tent and he had this bright pink scarf on. I thought he was the crazy uncle. It was about 6.30 in the morning and he was just jabbering away and then I looked over and there was a man with a gun next to him and I realized that this was the police again and we couldn't figure out because there's no language happening here that uh, he was either saying um, you shouldn't be here and I'm going to come back and find you or if I come back and you're still here I'm going to find you. We couldn't wow. figure out but the, the family was incredibly gracious. They fed us breakfast and was was funny um, we... Uh, we're looking for, again, just a place to set up a tent. And this man came up to him. He was the younger brother. Then the older brother came in. And it's a family compound. And, and these are, you know, bamboo style and some teak wood, but, you know, fairly basic lodging. A toilet out back, you know, near, you know, near the river, a little cook pot. So it's the middle of the night. You got to take a pee. Uh, well, uh, you have to head out around near the ducks 
around the chickens and over by the pigs, and then there's the little outhouse. In the dark. And, and yeah, in the dark. And you have your flashlight out, and you want to look because you never know the neighbor might be using the bathroom too. So even though it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you want to carefully knock because uh, very often three or four households They're are going to share one little outhouse. outhouse. Exactly, yeah. What's the that sound? You're is why there. many people are not going to go to Northern but I would think that'd be a highlight. I mean, uh, it was fabulous. A, apart from gross sounds, mm-hmm. what would you hear when you make that 3 o'clock in the morning trip? Uh, I mean, well... In the, the the rush of the river again the you know it's amazing how loud pigs can be even in the middle of the night and just the, the sounds of the insects and also that humidity that comes there when you're near that much tree canopy very often that that uh, and when you get out into the forest it's amazing to be in the true forest of Southeast Asia where at two o'clock in the morning it starts to rain. But it's not clouds. It's just all that moisture that's come up and come up in the canopy, and it finally has to do something. It contents, and it literally drips all the way until 8 o'clock in the morning. Wow. Now, the, the plumbing in these humble places, I don't think they have running water. They've got mandies, or what do you call this, uh, where you've got a, a buck, a scoop? Yeah. Yeah, it's basically your... So tell your, me about how you shower and so on. and Because you're the, mm-hmm. you're the Westerner right. with a fancy bike that's worth right. more than their entire uh, estate, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're the guest. Uh, how, do they take care of you with a shower? What, what's the deal? Well, I mean, the, very often in that that place, you'd, you'd call the outhouse or... or shower house, you'd go in and, and they'd give you a bucket of water. And that's and, and very often we had our own soap, but there often be soap in there. So they'd issue and you a bucket of water. This is what you brush your teeth with. This right. is what you wash. Well, I mean, uh, very often we had water our, ourselves. Now, what you'll find both in Thailand and in Laos, you'll find bottled water everywhere. Okay. Uh, it's much more of a, an issue in Laos. Be, they're trying to keep the litter down, whatever. So, And actually, it's great because a lot of the places that you stay will say, please, Come and, and reuse your bottles. You know, if you, if you go to a guest house and you, and you do find them along the main route, routes right. in Laos, go and refill your bottle there as opposed okay. to buying 17 bottles. Because you know, you're biking bottles. and keeping hydrated oh, is probably yes. a major um, Lots of water every day. When I was up in the northwest corner of Thailand, my feeling was the tribes people had no real care where the border was. They were living oblivious to the modern political entities. Did you get that sense at all? Uh, yes. I think so, but I think that the the border issue, like our own border issue in our country, comes to a head uh, whenever the economic times get tough and people are going back and forth too often. Or clearly, the wrong Thailand direction. would be the place to get your, your exactly. Uh, well, there are more people who speak Lao in Thailand than there are in Lao, and here you have a you know Lao is that population of six million. Of course, if there were jobs, it would be closer to twenty or, or thirty million. Okay. So everybody heads across the Mekong to work. And Lao is can. a communist government. It is. While, while Thailand is a constitutional monarchy. So what kind of illicit activities do you encounter on these roads? Is there stuff uh, going on around the borders? Well, not as well on the borders. We, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time in the borders because we were, again, uh, mm-hmm. along the Mekong there. But I do remember taking a secondary road, which, of course, you try to do on a bicycle, and uh, seeing this truck approaching in this very large thing in the back. And, of course, there was the last thing in my mind was, was thinking that, wow, it's an elephant. And there was this large pickup truck that went speeding by at about 55, 60 miles an hour. And I, and we both, Kat and I looked at each other. <laughs> yeah, that was an elephant. All, then followed by two other trucks with some very large teak logs. And it was tree bandits. You can't log teak in Thailand anymore. It's illegal. And the, the elephants are used, in a sense, instead of having a big John Deere heading up there, you take an elephant, and the, the elephant can get up and drag that log down onto the road, and they've got to get out of there because it's illegal. So these teak wood rustlers, they'd mm-hmm. have to travel with their elephant. Right, exactly. And then they would get their, their goods, mm-hmm. and then where are they taking it? Well, they're going to take it to somebody else who is going to saw that down into logs, and that's either going to be somebody's property or, or whatever right within Thailand. Now, in Laos, there's a large road that is happening in the northeast of Laos, heads towards China. And in fact, the Chinese government is funding it. They say that that's to help the people of Laos. Well, that is, that's a logging road, at least in my opinion. And I saw some of the largest trees. I saw semis groaning under you know the stress of one or two trees. The only time I've seen trees that large were in pictures of the 1800s here in the Northwest. And that's what's still available in Laos. And the sad thing is, of course, when you have a country that is impoverished as Laos is, it's a commodity. And so their forests are going to go very quickly unless you know, some other countries either step in or have an op- opportunity 
how do you pick up all this information? Do you just, uh, as you're traveling, how do you pick up this? Because it's not in your guidebook. Oh, yeah. Well, some of it is in guidebooks that you talk to, but you also, you know, I find that very often meeting other travelers on the road or, of course, if you do speak English and you end up meeting that person who does, you find yourself in an entire evening of asking questions that you've wanted to ask for Affirming weeks. hunches you've had. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes I find myself finally writing things down in a little notebook of because right. you'd, you'd end up finding somebody who spoke English. You'd have this wonderful time and then you'd leave and you realize there were five questions we've been dying to know for the past month and we forgot to ask. Willie, when you and Kat put together the journal of this trip, what photograph would be on the cover? You know, it would be a photograph of Kat cycling out of Chiang Mai. And we were cycling out of Chiang Mai, not many bicyclists, but I, she was in front of me. And there was a man who was cycling a bicycle. He was probably 65 years old. And I realized that this man looked back and he did a double take. And I did a double take because he saw two people with loaded down bicycles. But then he saw a woman on a bicycle. And then I watched this man's knees went up and down faster, faster, because he realized there was a woman on a bicycle that was about ready to pass him. And Kat was just fever, and she they they pulled up alongside of each other, and this old man and his knees going out to the side, whirling, and they got along the side of each other, and there was the kind of a tension, but there was a moment, and I was behind, and all of a sudden I saw them turn to each other, and they both just opened up into this childish laughter that was the most pure, wonderful moment. And it went on for probably, it seemed like a half a kilometer. It was probably, you know, <laughs> I don't know, maybe 300 meters, just laughing along. And I thought to myself, you know what? I want to be that man. I want to be 60, 70, 80 years old with my knees up and down, laughing down a road. And that's just perfect. Surrounded by Northern Thailand. That's a <laughs> journal I want to read. Willie Weir, author of Spoke Songs, Thank you so much for sharing your adventure cycling uh, adventures. We hope to talk to you with some more travel fun later on. It's been my pleasure, Rick. Always is. Going to China or maybe Siam I want to see for myself Those faraway places I've been reading about in a book that I took from the shelf. Those faraway places with the strange sounding names Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.